You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. If you would please join with me in turning to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And tonight we come to the end of our study of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. We will put our attention this evening on verses 12 through 16, but we will read beginning at verse 10. Having dealt with verses 10 and 11 this morning, we focus tonight on verses 12 through 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we read beginning with the 10th verse. Paul writes, But to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and that the husband should not divorce his wife. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her, she must not divorce her husband. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not enslaved in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Let's go to our God together in prayer. Lord, we thank you for a sweet day of worship, time together, and fellowship, a fellowship that is always around the truth, a fellowship that we know in Jesus, a fellowship that we know in the truth that you have brought us into. And for this we are grateful. Thank you, Lord, for a church that loves you and loves the Word of God. Lord, I pray that tonight you would guide us as we enter into this time of study. Help me to preach. Help us to listen. May this next hour be good for our souls in the multiplied ways that your word meets the needs of your people. Lord, you know each and every person sitting before me. You know what each of our needs would be tonight. You know, Lord, what we're going to face tomorrow if the Lord Jesus should not return this very day. And so, Lord, would you not only meet the needs that we're aware of, but equip us in ways that we don't yet know that we're going to need. We thank you for your faithfulness to shepherd us every step of the way on our journey home as we sojourn here and live for you as pilgrims in this place. Lord, produce in us that unmistakable evidence of your saving work and that which glorifies you. We ask you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God's people are different. We are not different by nature. We are not different because we were born different, we are 
different by virtue of the new nature. We are different because of the new birth. It's not a difference explained by us as individuals. It's a difference explained by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Salvation has forever changed us. God has not just changed our status before Him. He has changed us. The heart of stone has been taken away. A heart of flesh in its place. Slavery to sin has been broken. We've been transferred from one kingdom to another, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's Son. The the Lord that we were enslaved to in the kingdom of darkness is no longer holding sway over our lives. We now know Jesus as Lord and King and Master and Shepherd. Old things have passed away. Behold, everything has become new. And because of this work in our lives, we now have hearts that are tender to God, tender to His commands. We are not a people characterized by hard-heartedness. It's impossible to think that we could be the objects of such a saving work with such different lives now, and it produced no difference in the realm of marriage and when it comes to the matter of divorce. Impossible to think that the Lord would have saved us, and yet in that realm, marriage and divorce, there's nothing different about us. Indeed, there is a difference in God's people. We see in marriage what unbelievers do not see. When God tells us of what marriage is meant to depict, what marriage is meant to teach, something greater than itself, we see that, we understand that. The result is we are aiming at something in marriage that unbelievers do not aim at. Unbelievers are not aiming at the glory of God in their marriages, but God's people do. We are characterized by a kind of love and loyalty and fidelity that you don't find in lost humanity. And we see that in the verses that we dealt with this morning, verses 10 and 11. We see this difference. We learned this morning that we're reminded that what God gives us anywhere in His Word, but including this instruction, it's binding upon us. The Word of God is not just inerrant, it is not just sufficient, it is authoritative. Where God has spoken, it settles the issue. Where God has spoken, there is no debate, conversation. You just bow the knee, you believe Him, and you obey Him. And so on this subject, like every other subject, we need to hear what our God says, and then submit to it. Paul reminded us that what he's giving us in verses 10 and 11, Jesus is already on record about. He says in verse 10, to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord. He's just repeating the teaching of Christ. And then what he teaches is no hard-hearted divorce. A wife is not to leave, divorce her husband. A husband is not to divorce his wife. Now, divorce is a reality in a fallen world. The tragedy, the heartache of divorce sometimes happens even, even in the lives of believers. But when it happens, it's not because it was desired. It's not because the believer's pursuing it. It was unavoidable. There are marriages that are untenable. 
We talked about that this morning. So what? The standard is no hard-hearted divorce. But even where divorce has occurred, the teaching in these verses is no remarriage. If she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. So the standard is upheld, the same standard that Jesus taught, one man with one woman for life. A one flesh bond God brings into being and no man is to separate. And Paul makes clear this teaching is for everyone, both wives and husbands. But he doesn't stop there. He, as I said this morning in verse 1, we see he's answering questions which were submitted to him by the Corinthian congregation. And they ask a question that Jesus was not on record about. And that is, but what about when a believer is married to an unbeliever? Verses 10 and 11, marriage and divorce as as it relates to two people who profess faith in Christ. Marriage and divorce in the matter of Christians. Verse 12, but to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, a brother has a wife who is an unbeliever. A woman, a believing woman, has an unbelieving husband. And he goes on to talk about this issue. So the issue that's being raised now is, what about divorce between a believer and an unbeliever? And he's going to answer that question. I explained this morning that when he says, I say not the Lord, he's not at all undermining the authority of what he writes. These are the words of God. These words have come to us by inspiration of the Spirit of God. This is as much the Word of God as what He said in verses 10 and 11. What He's saying is this is something new. This is new revelation. When Jesus was here on the earth, He didn't address this in Matthew and Mark and Luke. We don't have Him talking about this, but now we will hear the Lord through His apostle as He speaks through Him regarding this subject. It's an important question. Someone might well say, I can understand why a marriage between two believers should be maintained, even where there's difficulty. You have two people who have access to Christ, access to the Spirit, access to the truth. Yes, I can understand why a marriage between two believers ought to be maintained. But I was saved after I got married. Am I not free to be married to a believer? Wouldn't it be better for me spiritually? If I got out of this marriage with this unbeliever and started life afresh and anew in my new life with Christ and marry a believer, why can't I leave this marriage with an unbeliever and find happiness and peace in marriage with a fellow believer since I am a new creation? Paul, what do you say to believers married to unbelievers? What's interesting about what I just suggested I've been saved. Why can't I get out of this marriage to an unbeliever and marry a believer? It's interesting to me that if someone were to say something like that, their reasoning actually matches the kind of reasoning that people have used to try to argue for remarriage after a divorce that occurred when they were not converted. Sooner or later, you're going to hear this. Someone will say, Well, I believe this person now is free to remarry. Yes, they experienced a divorce. Maybe even they were the guilty party when it came to sexual immorality. But 
the argument goes, they were lost. They didn't know Jesus. All of that has been forgiven. So despite what Jesus says about remarriage and what Paul writes here about remarriage, they should be free to remarry. Doesn't salvation, doesn't the forgiveness found in Christ sort of wipe out the marital status? I mean, the divorce occurred before they were saved. Well, listen, if that kind of reasoning holds, couldn't you use the same kind of reasoning to wipe out a marriage? I mean, if if salvation can wipe out a divorce, why can't it wipe out a marriage? Why could I not say, well, let me just get divorced and remarried now that I have a new life in Christ because this marriage was entered into before I knew Jesus. And now I'm married to someone who doesn't love the Lord and stands in the way of my spiritual progress. In fact, someone might have been arguing, remember he's answering questions from Corinth, someone might have been arguing that it would be spiritually beneficial for them to get out of this marriage with an unbeliever. What do I do if I'm in an unequally yoked marriage? Now before we listen to what Paul writes here, we've got to be clear about something. There are only two ways that such a marriage exists. A believer married to an unbeliever. Way number one I've already spoken to, that is you were saved after your marriage. One day... You woke up and lived your life as an unbeliever married to an unbeliever. Then the Lord saved you. And the next day, now you're a new creation married to an unbeliever. That happens. People come to Christ after they are married, and now they are the only saved person in their home. Another way it occurs is when a person enters into a marriage disobediently. That is, they were a believer and they married an unbeliever, even though the Bible is clear they should not do that. They must not do that. Both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, there is the clear teaching that a believer must only marry a believer. God does not want His people unequally yoked. Look at verse 39, even in this chapter. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39, speaking to the condition of widows. A wife is bound as long as her husband lives. But if her husband has fallen asleep, that is, if he has died... She is free to be married to whom she wishes. Then he adds these words, only in the Lord. Your husband has died, now you're free to remarry, but only to a fellow believer. You must not marry an unbeliever. So the only way this situation that Paul is addressing could have come to be is someone is saved after they are married or they disobediently entered into a marriage with an unbeliever. What does Paul say about this? What does the Spirit of God What does our God say to us through His Apostle? A few things I want to point out tonight. First of all, I've already mentioned this, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. Christ did not address this. Christ did not address this. We know this. Read the Gospel accounts. He did not speak to this. But again, I want to underscore what He writes here is just as binding as if Jesus had addressed it. You might like your Bible with red letters where Jesus spoke, And I'm not telling you to get rid of it, but I do want to tell you your red letters mean nothing. What Jesus said, we have recorded in Scripture, was and is the Word of God, but the rest of what you have in Scripture is just as authoritative and just as binding. But Jesus wasn't on record about this, so Paul is being used by God to give this additional revelation. What does he say? He says, the believer is not to send away the unbeliever. 
To the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her, she must not divorce her husband. You will search in vain in 1 Corinthians 7 or any other New Testament passage for a believer initiating a divorce. If the unbeliever is willing to live with the believer, the believer is not to seek a divorce. And realize something, Paul writes this. If you don't get this from Paul's writings, you're just not reading very carefully. Paul never diminishes the reality of difficulties. Christ never diminishes the reality of difficulties. The Word of God never diminishes the reality of difficulties. Paul writes this, God gives us His Word on this, knowing that a spiritually mixed marriage presents great difficulties. If you're a believer married to an unbeliever, your thinking is vastly different. You have the mind of Christ, they do not. The Word of God is truth to you, not necessarily to them. Certainly not in a way that a saved person understands it. As a result, your affections will be vastly different. What you love, what you desire, what you aim at, what you pursue is going to be different than an unbeliever. The standards for your behavior will be vastly different. Even if the person you're married to is lost and moral, so that on the, on the matters of morality, you land in the same places, even then the motivation for that morality will be vastly different. You understand yourself to be a sinner saved by the grace of God, and if not for the grace of God, you understand your potential for great sinfulness. But a lost person pursues morality in a way that is self-congratulating, self-exalting, and self-sourced. So even, even the behavioral standards in your home will be vastly different. And not only does this spiritually mixed marriage cause conflict between the two people who are married, it also introduces conflict in the raising of children. What a lost man or woman wants to teach the children will be different than what a saved man or woman wants to teach the children. So someone could have argued, and perhaps they even did, maybe this is what Paul was answering, that not only should a divorce be allowed, maybe it's appropriate because the unbeliever would bring defilement to the life of the family. Doesn't the unbeliever defile the believer in the marriage? And wouldn't the unbeliever defile the home in terms of raising the children? I say that they likely ask this question because Paul deals with this. He addresses that very question. What does he say? He says the unbelieving spouse in such a marriage is in a unique position. Look at verse 14. Four, if a brother has a wife who's an unbeliever, she wants to live with him, don't divorce her. woman has an unbelieving husband, he consents to live with her, don't divorce him. Why? Four, the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. 
The unbelieving spouse is in a unique position. What does he mean by sanctified? Well, he certainly doesn't mean that they're saved. You're not guaranteed salvation just because you're married to a believer. The word simply means to be set apart. The idea is the unbeliever comes into a unique contact with the living God as a result of being married to someone who knows the living God. They actually come into the presence of a kind of blessing on a life, on a home that only exists where you have a believer. I think we can illustrate it from the Old Testament. All of Egypt benefited from the presence of Joseph. All of Babylon benefited by the presence of Daniel. Not even fully aware Egypt and Babylon, not even fully aware of how they would be blessed because of the presence of one of God's people in a significant position. And so the presence of a believer brings people into contact with God in a way they would not otherwise know. So it's not the idea that your unbelieving spouse defiles you, it's that your presence actually represents a blessing in the life of the unbelieving spouse. Greater is he who's in you than he who's in the world. But not only is the unbelieving spouse in a unique position, so are the children. So are the children. This is one of the great fears of a saved spouse. What is going to happen to my children? Because of the influence of my unbelieving husband or wife. The way they think the way they live, the way they speak, the things they love. Their behavior doesn't constitute a danger, physical danger. Their behavior doesn't constitute something that would make the marriage untenable, but I worry about the influence of my unbelieving spouse on my kids. Well, notice what he says. He says in verse 14, for otherwise your children... But Paul, how can God want us to stay in this marriage? Well, because otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Just as that unbelieving spouse is brought into a realm, an atmosphere, an exposure that they would not have without you, so it is with your children. They feel the benefit of the believer in a way that is unique. This is especially powerful when you remember that idolatry characterized the pagan world in which Paul is writing. Unbelievers would have likely been involved in some kind of pagan religion. And yet God, through Paul, gives assurance that the children are considered holy in the same kind of way as that unbelieving spouse is. doesn't mean the children are going to be saved, but that they'll live their lives in a, in a kind of blessing that exists where a believer is. What kind of holiness is this? What kind of favor is this? Well, think about how God provides for His children. Matthew 6, we're told not to worry about what we put on, what we're going to eat, where we're going to live. The Lord knows the needs of His children. Well, your children will benefit from that kind of care. How God protects a believer. We are safe in the hand of God, safe in the hand of His Son. Your children will benefit as God takes care of you, His child. The kind of instruction that a believer has received, the enlightenment of the truth, and that is not just something that your children will be exposed to. 
watching your life. It is something they'll be exposed to as you teach them, as you instruct them with God's wisdom and God's truth, informing them, warning them, God working through you to convict them and encourage them. All of this kind of blessing resides in the home where a believer exists. Children are exposed to God in a way where one believer is that they otherwise would not be if they were in a home with two unbelievers. So just as the world is blessed by the presence of Christians in a way they are completely ignorant of, so unbelievers benefit from the presence of a believing spouse even if they don't acknowledge it, even if they don't appreciate you, even if they breathe out harsh words at you, they are being blessed because of your presence, whether they know it or not. So, Christ did not address this, but the Spirit of God does through Paul, and He says, don't send them away. If they're willing to live with you, don't divorce them. And you can do this comforted by the knowledge that your presence sanctifies that unbeliever in a way they're not even aware of, and your presence means that your children are regarded as holy. They come into a kind of blessing that the children of unbelievers don't experience. But he adds this, verse 15, Yet, if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not enslaved in such cases, but God has called us to peace. Do not feel bound to keep the unbeliever. If the unbelieving one leaves, which is to say he or she wants to divorce you, right? the picture is not the believer pursuing divorce, the believer initiating divorce. But if the unbeliever says, I want out, let him go. Let him leave. Why? Because the brother or the sister is not enslaved in such cases. Enslaved in what sense? Some have tried to argue that this reference to being in, in bondage or enslavement has to do with the marriage covenant. That, that if they leave, now you're free to remarry. I don't think it's what he's saying at all. I think what he's talking about is what goes on in the mind, in the heart, in the conscience of a Christian. We understand the seriousness of marriage. We understand the seriousness of divorce, as we talked about this morning. God hates it. A believer carries that in his or her conscience. And so there might be this temptation, by all means, to try to keep this person in the marriage. In some cases, even believers compromise and violate their conscience trying to hold on to a marriage relationship. What the Spirit of God would be saying is you can have a clear conscience. If they divorce you, you don't have to do more. You can let them go because God has called us to peace. The New Geneva Study Bible, which would not agree with us on divorce and remarriage even, takes this position. Listen to what the note says. Some interpret this statement to mean that if the unbelieving spouse deserts the marriage, the believing partner may remarry. The thrust of this passage, however, is simply that a Christian is not obligated to insist that the marriage remain intact. 
Such an insistence would prevent them from living in peace. I think that's right. He's not talking about remarriage. He's talking about, is the onus on me to preserve this? And the answer is, no, you're not bound to do that. The word for bondage here, or enslave, as LSB has it, is the is a form of the word dulao, which means to bring under subjection. I think it has to do with the conscience. Later in verse 27, when he's talking about the bonds of marriage, are you bound to a wife? He uses a different word, it's a form of the word deo, which just means to tie or to bind. So when he talks about being bound to a wife in verse 27, he's, he's using a different word than he does here. Anybody here listening to me or anyone listening to me later on that there's an unbeliever wanting to divorce you and you are fighting tooth and toenail to try to keep the marriage together, at some point, you just have to let them go. One of the reasons why a believer sometimes is fighting to keep them from leaving is because there is such a burden for their salvation. You care about them. You love them. You don't want to see them perish. It might seem to you you're the only voice of the gospel in their lives. If I don't fight to keep them in this marriage, they may perish and spend eternity separate from the Lord, separate from His accepting presence, under His wrath. Well, the Spirit of God through Paul comforts your heart because listen to the next verse, verse 16, for how do you know Oh, wife, what would motivate me to try to keep this? Paul acknowledges it by these words. How do you know, oh, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, oh, husband, whether you will save your wife? You can let them leave with the knowledge of your limitations. You and I do not have the power to regenerate. We can share the gospel. We can strive to live a testimony of the gospel. We can pray for a person's salvation, but we do not grant the new birth. We do not grant repentance. We do not grant faith. We do not create new creations. Only the Lord can save. And there is no guarantee that the unbeliever to whom you are married will ever come to faith in Jesus. And with that knowledge of your limitations, when it becomes evident that they don't want to stay with you, you can let them go. By the way, it's possible that verse 16 is taken the way I just explained it, which is in a negative way. There's no guarantee they will ever be converted. The New English Bible translates it this way, "'Think of it as a wife you may be your husband's salvation.'" As a husband, you may be your wife's salvation. So they take verse 16 positively to look back to verses 12 and 13 and answer the question, why would I want to stay in this anyway? And the answer would be, well, maybe the Lord will use you to bring them to Jesus. Both are true. One reason why we would be exhorted to stay in the marriage, not only respect for the marriage covenant, but the Lord may use you to see them converted. But I would see the verse referring to the more immediate context to say, There's no guarantee they will ever be saved, so you can let them leave. In either event, there's one important thing we need to note. There's no mention of remarriage. There's no mention of the freedom to remarry if they leave. 
the truth that continues to be insisted upon. I'm talking now about clear statements. I'm not talking about taking the exception clause and reading it onto every passage. Just letting the verses say what they say in their context, every clear statement about marriage and about divorce and about remarriage insists that it's a lifelong union. Even down to verse 39, a wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband has fallen asleep, if he dies, she is free to be married. Then she's free to be married. But only in the Lord. To whomever she wishes, but only in the Lord. So over the past several weeks, we've gone everywhere from Genesis to 1 Corinthians. And we've listened as the Word of God teaches us about this subject. And so as we wrap it up tonight, I want to finish with four questions. In light of everything, not just tonight's sermon, but in light of everything we've heard throughout this series, here are my questions for us. Number one, are you committed to God's commandments concerning marriage? And I'm not just talking about His commandments regarding the permanence of marriage. I'm talking about the positive things we learn about how to live in marriage. You know, we dealt with that too. How am I to live as a husband? How are the women here to live as wives? What does a, a marriage exist for? What are we aiming at? What does love look like? What does forgiveness look like? What does a transformed heart that is not a heart of stone look like in a marriage? Are you and I committed to obeying everything the Word of God has to say about living like a Christian at home? This is what causes great loss in professing Christian homes. You don't live like a Christian right there in the closest relationship you have in all of life. You come to church, you play the part, you go to work, you play the part, you go home, you live like somebody else. Are you living like a Christian right there with the person you're married to? And so will we see marriage from God's vantage point? Will we hear our Lord and go back to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and see marriage as God originally designed it, the creation of a new family a new kinship unit, a bond, a one flesh bond that God creates and is not to be put asunder, will we see marriage that way? And will we recognize it? it speaks of something greater, God's relationship with His people? And will we live in our marriages in a way that clearly communicates the truth of God's commitment to His people? That unrelenting love that just will not let go. You committed to that? Second, if we have failed in this area, will we acknowledge it? Will we acknowledge it as sin? Will we call it what the Word of God would identify it to be? And then would we thank God for His mercy, His forgiveness in Christ? Something I've learned about guilt over the years, it never goes away by denying it. The way we deal with guilt as believers, is we recognize the reality of the cross. We see our sin for what it really was and then thank God that it was all paid for in full by the blood of the one who saved us. And we believe God about our full forgiveness and we walk forward in the light of the truth. Even as Paul says in verse 17, that as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each 
in this manner let him walk, where we meet with the truth, where we met with Jesus, now we walk forward in the light that God has given us. I can't go back and undo what I've done, but I thank God that the blood of Jesus answers for it all. And now I want to walk forward in in a way that pleases the Lord. And even then, I need God's grace every step of the way, every moment of every day. As 1 John 1, 9 says, we are a people who confess our sins. We don't say we have no sin. We don't say we have never sinned. We say the same as God says about our sin, and we do that on a regular basis. Saved people are confessing people. If not for the grace of God, we all perish. Will I acknowledge my failures in marriage and receive forgiveness in Christ? Acknowledge what God has already done because in Christ all your sins are forgiven if you know Jesus. Third, will we be committed to the standard of God for marriage in all of our ministry to others? Now I'm talking about what you and I are going to encounter in other people's situations. When they are having marital conflict, when they are perhaps considering divorce, and God in His providence and sovereignty puts you in their pathway, for whom will you stand? What will you say? Will we play the spiritual coward and deny what the Word of God says to have acceptance from that person? Or will we recognize that you don't love someone unless you tell them the truth? That true compassion and true love is not to ever affirm someone in wrong thinking and wrong decisions. True compassion and true love says, my heart breaks for you, but this is God's remedy. This is what He says. I've seen it as a pastor. It's saddened me on many occasions when people who ought to know better actually encourage other people, professing Christians, in a sinful course. May it not be true of you. When you meet with someone, even though they're hurting, if they are considering something that violates the Word of God, may you be a voice of truth in the midst of their confusion. Last question. If you have been considering a divorce, would you repent of that? You have heard the standard of God's Word. Even if you were to differ with what I've taught about the exception clause, something you cannot deny is the emphasis of our Lord in Matthew 19 is not ending marriages. It is maintaining them. So, if you have been considering divorce, would you turn from that? Would you examine your own heart and ask, my current way of thinking, my current way of deciding, does it represent a heart of flesh granted by God through salvation? Unlimited forgiveness. How often, Lord? Seven times? No, 77 times. Unlimited forgiveness. Or does your current state of mind represent something Jesus condemned, which is hard-heartedness? Moses allowed you to put away your wives 
because of hard-heartedness, but in the beginning it was not like that. And he takes them from what they were suggesting would excuse them to a standard that would make their divorces inexcusable. Would you, this very night, repent of that kind of thinking? In fact, I want to exhort you, brothers and sisters, don't even in your worst moments, in your harshest moments, if you're married long enough, you'll have one eventually. Amen? Don't suggest divorce. Don't talk about it. Don't threaten it. Don't entertain it. One of the best decisions Jackie and I made early on and one of the best pieces of advice that we received was don't use the D word, divorce. No matter how hard it gets, we have the Lord. We have the truth. And from the standpoint of parenting, can I tell you, there is no sense of security in a child's life like knowing mom and dad will be together. We tend to think, well, my kids know I love them. <laughs> well, they might, but do they know you love their father? Do they know you love their mother? Because that's security. Now, ultimately, of course, we point them higher than that. Our faith in Christ. But my goodness, if we know Jesus... Can't mom and dad love each other? And so if you've been entertaining that kind of thinking, would you acknowledge that as sin? And say, so I want to close that door, God, for your glory. I close that door in my mind because it doesn't honor you. May the Lord work in this church in such a way that the marriages represented here, no matter what our past has been, today and moving forward, may the marriages in this church speak of God's relentless love, unbreakable love toward His people. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank You for Your holy Word that addresses our questions, addresses even our objections in a way that leaves us in total dependence upon You. If we're to live in a way at home that glorifies our Savior and speaks of His love for us, we cannot do it without the power supplied by Your Spirit. We cannot do it without the light granted in Your Word. Father in heaven, would You make us a people who above all desire to glorify You and a people who walk in the truth that You've given. Lord, would You protect the marriages represented in this room, in this church? Would You strengthen them? Would You work in such a way that there's a clear testimony in the way we love each other at home of the love that Jesus has for His church and the love that the church has for our Lord. We ask You for this in Jesus' name. Amen.